I want to start by saying it's such a privilege to be here in many dimensions. Um, being part of the legacy of Paul DeWald is uh, an honor. And also to be in St. Louis at this particular time in the wake of the killings of Michael Brown and Anthony Lamar Smith and countless other atrocities that have happened here that I don't know about. Um, and uh, the way in which St. Louis has become a, a focal point and a cauldron for um, many of the horrible things that happen in this society. Um, being here at this particular historical moment is, um, is very um, humbling and, um, and a challenge to me and an opportunity to, to grapple with some of the issues that, that are raised. Uh, the fact that a psychoanalytic institute is approaching race and social class and culture at this moment in St. Louis also raises the question of what is it, what is the, the potential in an interaction between the field of psychoanalysis and the, so, these social issues. Um, I would say that at first glance, it's not clear what that relationship could be. If you take a, a caricature of psychoanalysis of two people sitting in a room, one of them three associating, the other interpreting, it doesn't seem to have obvious social relevance. But one of the things that I want to argue tonight is that there's a tremendous social relevance to a psychoanalytic point of view, and I, I hope to develop that. I want, I want to say a little bit about, um, about the way I prefer to talk and present with groups of people like you, which is I never, I don't any longer read papers. I think it's very deadening to read papers, and and so I like to talk with you. And part of that is also that I don't want to talk at you for any length of time. When you have thoughts and questions, um, comments, I would like to make room for those as we go. So maybe I'll take, I don't know, five to 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the beginning to sort of lay out what I'd like to talk about. And then when you're inspired to say something, please um, let that be known. and. And hopefully I'll be able to weave your concerns into the, uh, into the points that I want to make. Um, so I want to say a little bit about what I think psychoanalysis, what the potential is in an interaction between psychoanalysis and, and critical social issues as they exist today. And by the way, uh, referring to Berkeley in the 60s, um, Berkeley in the 60s, at that time, I, I look back on it and I think of it as a, a sort of um, brief utopian moment that um, is in danger of, be, of disappearing in the current uh, climate where, um, where love and peace, etc., are... Um, flickering flames in danger of going out and where it's hard to it's hard to keep faith with with faith in human nature and I found myself as I was on the plane today flying out here trying to capture some of the 
some of the hopefulness that came out of the 60s. Um, and it, it was good that I had those two hours on the plane because uh, looking at the world from, from 36,000 feet um, sort of uh, freed me from the despair that I've been in recently about the way the world is going and helped me to mobilize some of that spirit to be able to hopefully inspire some of you as well. So, um, so to return to the, to the idea of uh, the interaction, the potential in the interaction between psychoanalysis and the larger world. One question that often comes up is what does a psychoanalytic point of view have to contribute? And I think what's often lost there is what does psychoanalysis have to learn from an interaction with the social world? I think very often um, uh, we, we lose sight. There, there's an occupational hazard in psychoanalysis, actually, which has to do with, with feeling that psychoanalysts are experts in the area of the unconscious. And we often lose sight of the fact that that's a contradiction in terms. Nobody can be an, interaction, an expert on the unconscious because the unconscious by nature is ungraspable and keeps surprising us. So as soon as we think we know anything about the unconscious, we're not keeping our faith with the vision of psychoanalysis. So the, the vision of psychoanalysis, I think, has to do actually with what we don't know and being open to what we don't know and, um, and therefore listening more than we preach or talk. And so I want that to um, be a, a spirit, the spirit in which we talk together tonight. If psychoanalysts are expert in anything, psychoanalysts are expert in blind spots, in what is not seen and not known. And, um, and that applies to all of us, it applies to me, along with everybody else, and so I want you to feel free to point out my blind spots, because they will be as obvious, they'll be much more obvious to you than they will be to me. And that's the way it always is in, in social interactions, but also in, in therapy. So psychoanalysis, so, so what is psychoanalysis? The, I, I made reference at the beginning to, to the uh, usual form that it takes, which has to do with an office, and two people in that office talking about the personal problems of one of the people. And, um, and there's a history to the way in which psychoanalysis has taken shape in that particular way. But there's a lot more that psychoanalysis can be. And if you think of psychoanalysis in a broader way as having to do with blind spots, is the way that I would think of it. That is, what is not conscious in a very broad sense of what, what the word unconscious. Freud had a, a particular way of defining the unconscious, and it's a funny locution, the unconscious, as if it's a definable thing. He thought of it in terms of, of sexual and aggressive impulses that, got, that were repressed. But um, I think the vision of psychoanalysis expands tremendously when we think of it much more broadly in terms of what we don't want to know, what we don't know, um, either because we're motivated not to know certain things, 
it makes us anxious to know certain things and to some extent people naturally avoid anxiety when it gets above a certain point. And then there are things that are unconscious by virtue of the fact that we're socialized in a way not to know a lot of things. And, um, and for many of us, myself included, life is a series of challenges and opportunities to outgrow the, the way that we were socialized to not notice certain things. And I think um, the way that race operates in the society and the way that social class and culture operate in the society, the way sexual orientation, the way gender operates in the society, is something that we, we're born into it. And so it's very difficult to get a perspective on it differently than the way that we were socialized. So... Um, the, Consciousness raising became a, a touchstone in the feminist movement in the 60s, having to do with learning more about how gender works, how power relationships work around gender. But I think consciousness raising, it's a, it's a beautiful term in a way because it links what happens on the individual level with the social world. How we learn about the... the, um, the the injustices and um, um, the the pain in the world around us that we're we're socialized not to notice, both because of the fact that we may have been raised in a neighborhood which was designed to exclude people who are suffering in a certain way. Um, we may have been taught about different categories of people by our parents who were themselves socialized by their, their parents to take for granted differences between people, categories into which people are placed, and so on. So it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of effort to get perspective, to have one's consciousness raised about those things. Um, so... I'm going to take one more step now before I pause to see if people have uh, points they want to raise. I want to say a little bit about how I think psychoanalysis became white in the United States. You know, one of the things that um, holds back the development of psychoanalysis is that very often when you walk into a room, and not really this one, um, but many rooms in which psychoanalytic topics are discussed, you see, you see a sea of white faces. And um, uh, that's actually a misnomer. Uh, white, we can maybe come back to this later, but white people are not actually white, just as black people are not actually black. White people are, are pink, and black people are mostly brown, which creates a continuum. Brown and, and pink are not they, they shade into each other. So why do we call people black and white? It's because we're trying to create a category never the twain shall, shall meet. So psychoanalysis became white in the United States, and this is how it happened. So um, Freud 
the, the Jews of Vienna were actually called black. Um, Freud was one of the first Jews who was allowed to become a medical doctor in Vienna at that time. And um, once he became a medical doctor, he was one of the first medical doctors who was allowed to treat non-Jews. So there's a book by um, Sandra Gilman called Freud, Race, and Gender, in which he argues that Freud was bending over backwards to be respectable to the non-Jewish medical establishment of Vienna at that time, which accounts for his reluctance to locate psychoanalysis culturally. He, he did not want psychoanalysis to be labeled a Jewish science, and so he made it universal. The Oedipus complex applies to everyone. And in that way, he, he um, contributed a legacy of inattention to cultural issues. In any case, in, as part of his project of, of um, being accepted by the medical world of Vienna, Gilman argues that he located the sense of deficiency in women and that's where the idea of penis envy comes from. That he, was, he couldn't free himself of the idea that some people are superior and some people are inferior, but he removed it, he removed the label of inferiority from the Jews and put it on women. And his uh, psychology, for the most part, is a psychology of the developing boy, not of the developing girl. Um, in any case, Freud... Freud was, it's impossible to categorize him, he, he said so many different things, and, um, but it's not well known, but Freud actually um, instructed all the psychoanalytic societies of Europe to have free clinics. He, in one of his, um, one of his papers, he said that psychoanalysis should be available to everyone regardless of means as much as surgery is available to everyone, can you imagine that in those days surgery was available to everyone regardless of means? He wanted psychoanalysis to be available to everyone. And when I was in graduate school and read that, I was sort of led to believe that this was pie in the sky. But the analysts of Europe took it as a directive and every single psychoanalytic society in Europe started a free or low cost clinic to serve the community around them. But then the Nazis came and the Nazi and the, the analysts, most of whom were Jewish, fled. And some of them came to the United States, to New York, mostly. And when they got to New York, they discovered, first of all, they were, they were tired and weary of the social world, having lived through the, the Nazi era and uh, having escaped. And wanted nothing more than to hole up in private offices and find a privileged place for themselves. And so they embraced the medical model and the idea that psychoanalysis was a private practice, a privileged specialty, subspecialty of psychiatry, and turned their back on the social world. And so that's how it happened that psychoanalysis became white that the, their clientele became people who were economically and politically privileged. I want to insert a word about the word privilege, by the way, uh, before pausing to see if people have thoughts about what I've said so far.
The word privilege is often used without the qualification of what kind of privilege we're talking about. So, uh, for example, when people talk about when people talk about privilege in general, they they're referring to economic privilege and political privilege, but they're not talking about other forms of privilege. For example, the privilege of living in a community or the privilege of having a spiritual point of view about their lives. And the fact that we use the word privilege without that qualification um, shows how deeply embedded we are in a system in which all that matters is money and power. And power also is, a, uh, is used without qualification, as if um, political power, the power to bully, as we can see so clearly now, is taken as a form of empowerment rather than a form of helplessness. You know, I sometimes wonder why it is that the, the more, the richer and more powerful people are, the, the more prone they are to temper tantrums, what seem like temper tantrums. Like people are sort of um, led to believe that if they have enough money or they have enough ability to get their way, that they will uh, thereby be promised some kind of immunity from the ordinary human suffering of mortality, of death, of illness that all of us are subjected to. And uh, my, my great teacher about these things is James Baldwin, who, um, who wrote about this in particular, how whiteness is a, is a, um, a delusion a delusion that by being white, um, people can, or by living in a gated community, by removing themselves from obvious human suffering, that people can retain some sort of immunity from that. And there's nothing more um, revealing about that than to see the rage with which people who've been quote-unquote privileged all their lives face mortality and death. So uh, let me pause there and see if there's anything anyone wants to say before moving on. Dr. Altman, I heard you say something very interesting. Um, I've, been, I've been doing some work around the trauma in the community. First of all, thank you very much for, um, for recognizing, for recognizing the struggle in the community and, and how it's reverberating, reverberating and what it means, mm -hmm. the significance of this moment. I, I appreciate that, first of all. But I heard you um, talk about, when you said that the Jews fled and were weary of the, tired and weary of the social world, um, and, and created this sort of bubble and a, a new sort of way to operate, mm -hmm. to isolate themselves from that. But that weariness is something that is prevalent mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. in St. Louis. Yeah. We're, we're in a, a crisis of social and cultural trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, I came here tonight specifically to try to understand um, a, a term that I've been hearing to, to identify what's going on um, specifically, and not just in black communities, not just white communities, but generally, um, racial battle fatigue. Hmm. Racial battle fatigue. <laughs> And it seems 
when I heard you say that, mm -hmm. I thought, man, that is what um, I hear people communicating mm -hmm. about not just the historical traumas, Mm -hmm. But very specifically, mm -hmm. since August 9th of 2014, mm -hmm. through yesterday, mm -hmm. Today. when President Trump yeah. was here, yeah. right? And it caused oh. a lot of problems for people. And the only thing, so when I hear you say that, tired and weary mm -hmm. of, this, of the social world, mm -hmm. I, I would really like to understand how do we help people identify what that weariness is? Mm -hmm. And how do we assist them mm -hmm. with that weariness? Yeah. Well, I guess in terms of assisting people with it, we have to deal with our own battle fatigue first. And my battle fatigue at the moment has to do with, with being overcome by hopelessness and the feeling that people who have the power to destroy other people um, are prevailing and a sense of helplessness about that that can, that can rob us of our inspiration and our sense that, that love as a force in the world and having values, human, humane, human values of caring for one another seem like um, pathetic forces in relation to the to the tanks and the bombs and the bullets and um, I can I can think for myself I can think of one moment that was an antidote for me I'm I'm elaborating a little bit on the need to re-inspire ourselves um, anyway I'll just say what that thought was there there was a uh, a sermon. Um, Freddie Gray killed in the back of a police van in Baltimore, and um, so Anne Devere Smith did a uh, a play in which she played the parts of many people in that incident. Freddie Gray himself, and then the police who were involved, and his family, and most especially the pastor of his church, and. Um, I wish I could tell you more in detail, but Anne Devere Smith gave the sermon that he gave, and you can see it on YouTube. And uh, does anyone remember the name of his pastor? He's somebody to follow on Twitter if you want to, if you still have any interest in Twitter. Um, you can be, you can be aware of when he's giving a sermon about this, but he. He gives a very inspiring sermon. I think it's it's. It's interesting that I can't remember what he said because it was so inspiring. I can't too easily connect with that in myself at this moment. It had something to do with Jesus. Yes, okay. He was saying that Jesus encountered somebody who was disabled in some way, and I can't remember the details of it, and he asked to be cured. And Jesus said to him, get up, get up. And the, the, the reverend in his sermon, he speaks to the whole congregation. This is in the wake of the, of the killing of Freddie Gray. And he says, get up, 
don't put your head down and 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 get lost in your tears. Yes, this is a very painful moment, but it's no moment to be hanging out on the street corner, um, smoking with your buddies and whatever. He goes into all the ways that pe- what all the things that people can do when they're when they're when they give up and when they're despairing. And he says, "Get up." So that inspired me. So battle fatigue, battle, battle fatigue, battle's war. And in war, you're surrounded by the worst of people. And um, so Freud lived through World War I, and what he came out with was what he called the death instinct, that people are basically motivated by killing and dying. But another analyst, Melanie Klein, came out with something very different, which was a, a struggle between love and hate. So in doing that, she made a place for love that persists in the face of the worst manifestations of hate and built a whole psychology around the way that people try to preserve what she called the good object, but that has to do with, the, with love and protect it from the forces of hate in the world. And, and I think that to be a human being in this world or probably any other world is, has to do with trying to figure out how love and unbelievable and unbearable destructiveness coexist in our nature and not to lose sight of the fact that human connections and humane values always have a value. And I'm inspired there also by Gandhi and by Nelson Mandela and um, all the people who found ways to not get into violence. Martin Luther King. Um, anyway, that's those are my thoughts. Thank you. Anybody else want to? <laughs> my agenda coming to uh, this talk is to kind of come up with some sort of hopeful strategy confronting the fact the political reality that current administration furthers prejudice and division and you know what is the psychology when you see seemingly reasonable people feeling that it's okay to admit to you know all kinds of prejudice and discrimination and, and just having you know complete despair for the immediate future of the country so that's kind of a direction I'm hoping to learn something about the insight to why educated people, people who are, you know, on the surface good people, are, mm-hmm. are willing to embrace the current ideology that's leading the country. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully well, <laughs> um, one thought I have about that is that for someone like me, Um, I I was at a talk recently in which a group of psychoanalysts were talking about what does psychoanalysis have to contribute in this moment where there's such a dangerous person in the White House. And, um, And the idea seemed to be that psychoanalysts have a special obligation to tell the truth about that. But my thought through this was I think psychoanalysts have 
also an obligation to look at ourselves and people like us. Now, I, I, I don't know how to define us exactly, but um, how is it that people like me were so unaware that there was that 35% of people out there, millions and millions of people who were so angry and felt so unheard and so left out that they would vote for someone like Donald Trump. And even today, we don't acknowledge it. We, I, I want to say I instead of we, because I don't want to create a false um, sense of a group here. Even today, I'm shocked by that. I can't believe it. How can it be that I can't believe that there are X millions of people out there who are inspired by that attitude that Trump has? And what am I not taking account of? And how is it that I didn't realize that before? I think if I were black, I would not be surprised. So that tells you something about the way I was brought up and the world that I've lived in all this time. And how is it that the millions and millions of people like me, not quite enough, not enough millions of people, managed to live in that kind of a bubble for all this time? That's what psychoanalysis, that's the question psychoanalysis should be asking. Or that's one of the questions psychoanalysis should be asking. What you were just saying and what we just saw happen. And first of all, being who I am, I have to acknowledge that I have not seen this many people of color all together in the five or six years I've been at the St. Louis mm -hmm. Institute. Mm -hmm. So something right happened and something important can potentially happen from that, for this to have happened tonight. But that laughter that a number of us just shared about, yeah, no, we're not shocked mm -hmm. um, in relation to you saying that many people are shocked. I'm wondering about how psychoanalysis in general and we in St. Louis in particular can address that, the fact that that divide is so prevalent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, as many people know here, I've done research around this and the lack of interaction with communities of color, particularly the African-American community in St. Louis um, from analysts at our institute was breathtaking mm -hmm, to me mm -hmm. at first. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that in terms of what you see as potentially going on there and how we can address that from our analytic perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I have the answer about that. I, um, um, I think you're probably more likely to have some... Um, thoughts about how that could be remedied than, than I am. But, but um, what I notice about that um, is that in terms of the repetition of blind spots, like one of, one of the blind spots in this area, I think, has to do with a, a, the temptation of feeling like like psychoanalysts, psychoanalysts, psychoanalysis as a field is, uh, has some kind of special knowledge. So when psychoanalysis addresses 
people who haven't been convinced that psychoanalysis has anything to offer, it's very often by way of saying, look, this is what we have to offer. This is what we know. This is, uh, if you only understood how much we know, then you would be drawn into our group. No, you don't attract people that way. You don't attract people by telling them how wonderful you are and what they would gain from coming to you. No, you ask people when, when they do show up at your doorstep, as you have here, what brings you here and what are you hoping to find here and what are we doing wrong? We. What is the institute what is the institute doing right that you came here tonight? And what is the institute doing wrong that, that you haven't been here before or that you come here with trepidation? Or So that's, that's what I think. You know, there's a group in St. Louis um, that organized through Washington University um, Medical School. And it's called For the Sake of All. And a group of interdisciplinary professionals and lay people got together and they went into North St. Louis, which is predominantly black, and instead of telling the black residents what they needed, they sat and talked with different people and asked them what they thought they needed. And time and time again, over and over, what was identified is they needed medical care. Because to get medical care, and, and this is somewhat of an analogy in terms of mental health, but to get medical care meant taking like six buses and waiting 12 hours in the emergency room and, and leaving your job and not being able to get groceries for your, your children and your family and so on and so forth. So finally, three hospitals got together and they are now offering or they now have clinics in two high schools in North St. Louis. And they decided to start with juniors and seniors. And they were going to evaluate the program. And if it didn't work out, at least if they started with the young ones, like second graders, you know, they'd be very disappointed in third grade if this clinic wasn't available. But to me, it's very interesting that they, they um, I mean, social workers have gone into the community years ago. I, I'm a social worker by profession, original degree. And um, it's interesting how they, how this group did what we all know. I mean, you, you need to find out from people what they want and what they need and see if you can address those needs. And at some point they're gonna do mental health, um, they're gonna try to do something with mental health professionals, consulting with people who are in the field or going into the field and trying to help out. Well, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Um, I want to try to point out something about the repetition of blind spots in a project like that, um, with the understanding that all of us have these blind spots. But what I see in that is that when one group of people asks another group of people, what do you need, it, it tends to objectify the people who are, who are being asked that question as if we are the ones who provide and you're the ones who need. Please, go ahead. I think it's an education both ways. Yeah, okay, well then that needs to be made explicit. That when you ask people, what do you need, you also need to ask a question like, what do I need that you see that I need, that I don't see? Otherwise, it becomes a, uh, 
it becomes that kind of a repetition. And you know, not to not to um, what what you did, what your group did, is a is a valuable first step. And when you take a first step, you very often learn something about what was wrong with your first step. And then, if you're open, then you correct it and you make a second step. So. Um, I just want to give a, a little bit of an anecdote about something that happened with me in India. I've been going back to India uh, pretty regularly recently because there's a university there that wants to develop psychoanalytic training that is, um, that is community-oriented, that's not office-based. And so um, I went there and um, some of us were going to offer a class for the students in working psychoanalytically in the community. But the dean of the school, the, the day before the class was about to begin, said, who are we to be teaching other people about working psychoanalytically in the community? We, the faculty, need to go into the community first and see what we learn So about ourselves. And so, um, so the faculty was uh, asked to go out into the community in Delhi and talk with somebody that you normally wouldn't talk to. Um, that was it. So, so I was one of the people, I went out to, I was going to go out the next day to talk to somebody in Delhi that I normally wouldn't talk to. And I could tell you a million stories about what happened, but what I want to emphasize is what happened the day before, which was I was, um, I was fast walking doing my morning exercises in a, uh, on a road that led to a high-rise, a, a collection of high-rise buildings that were being built because the Commonwealth Games were about to come to Delhi. That meant British and other white foreign people were going to come to Delhi and the government of Delhi was going to build high-rise buildings for them to be comfortable in. And uh, there was a, a group of people, people were uh, from the countryside, villagers were brought into Delhi to build these roads and buildings in the back of pickup trucks, like a hundred people in the back of a pickup truck who would come in and break stones with hammers all day um, to, to, um, for the boundaries of the roads. And uh, um, their children... They would, their children would be there, their children would be um, naked and sitting in the, in the dirt while they were pounding these rocks. And I was noticing these people as I was doing my fast walking toward the high-rise that was going up in the distance. And uh, there was a man who crossed the road in front of me, and he had... Uh, there, in India now, people use uh, latrines. When I was there in the Peace Corps, uh, people urinated and defecated pretty much in the fields, in the open. But in the 30 years since I was in the Peace Corps, it's now almost 50 years, um, there's been a program to, a hygiene program in India. So there was a latrine across the road, and um, this man was going over to a latrine, and he had a little girl on his hip, and um, she had eye makeup on, um, she was um, clearly a treasured child, and then I heard him cough, and he coughed in a way that I had never heard before. It was probably it was either whooping cough or tuberculosis or something like that. 
<clears throat> so I noticed that, and I noticed that he was coughing right on, this, on his daughter, presumably. And then I got to the end of the road, and I turned around, and I came back, and there he was coming back across the road. He had been to the latrine. And as I approached him, I moved away to the other side of the road from where he was. And I was thinking, I mean, I, I think on a gut level, my feeling was I didn't want him to cough on me, but he was already like 50 or 100 feet away from me, so there was no way I was going to catch what he had, but still, I, I instinctively moved away from him as I was crossing. And then I realized that what I was afraid of catching was his suffering. The suffering of having whooping cough or tuberculosis or whatever it was, and having a beautiful little daughter who was most likely going to get the same thing. And in India, where you can't drink the water, you can't drink the water. The water is the place where the suffering is, is communicated. How it goes, there's the poor who you keep out there, and then you've got the privileged people who don't drink the water, who boil the water or whatever. So I realized then that I was afraid of the, the task of the next day, which is go out into the world in Delhi and talk to someone I ordinarily wouldn't talk to. I would be afraid of getting sick, and not only physically sick, but psychically sick, because suffering is, is contagious. And that's why people move to the suburbs and the exurbs and all of that. They want to get away from other people's suffering. And psychoanalysis is about the ability to tolerate suffering. It's about what we do to avoid suffering. That's what psychoanalysts call defense mechanisms. So that's where, that's where psychoanalysis meets the community. That's where psychoanalysis might meet the community. That's where psychoanalysis doesn't meet the community. By building up the walls and holding ourselves up in our offices, we build up walls against the suffering that's outside of the door. I didn't intend to talk this way tonight, but thank you for bringing this out. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the dean of the school's idea was don't try to treat anybody else until you've treated yourself. So the first step was to realize that it's there. And I think if you can realize the, the, the sickness within, the racism that you carry within yourself, that's a first step toward coming to terms with it. That's why I don't like the term cultural competence that's very current these days, as if any of us could master our own ethnocentrism or our own prejudice in various forms. It, to me, it, the idea of cultural competence breeds complacency. Oh, I took a test and now I'm culturally competent. No, none of us are culturally competent. 
And to be culturally competent, if it means anything, it means to realize that you're culturally incompetent and to be open to people who tell you that you're culturally incompetent in a particular instance. Like just then, you didn't understand who I am or what I said or something like that. And then we have to be, we have to have the space within ourselves to acknowledge our own insensitivity. Yes, man in the back. First, I apologize, uh, miss your lecture, but you know, I assume that most of the people in the audience are clinicians or work in the human service field in some capacity. And I have uh, been working with African American men for the last 25 years as a clinician. And one of the problems I have, and I'm an Afrocentric scholar, one of the problems I have is that most of the techniques that we use or we attempt to use. Uh, to correct the problems of African people on Eurocentric basis. So the question I ask all the time, can you name any of the theories? I mean, William Glasper, Peter J. none of these theories have ever done any research on African people. But we as clinicians supposed to take these skills that we, I mean, these techniques and theories that are designed from a European world mm -hmm. and make them applicable to African people. Mm -hmm. And I find it to be inadequate. So mm -hmm. can you discuss the, uh, the ramifications of trying to use something that was designed for uh, a European worldview and make it applicable to an African or a black man like me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, that was one of the things I was touching on earlier when I said that Freud was um, resistant to acknowledging that psychoanalysis itself had a cultural location. So uh, one of the things that happened when psychoanalysis came to North America was that in the in the the form it took was was ego psychology, and ego psychology had certain criteria of analyzability. People had to have certain qualities which were Eurocentric in order to um, to be considered a good psychoanalytic patient or to be considered healthy. That was the basic thing. To be healthy. You had to be educated in a certain way. You had to be verbal in a certain way. You had to be. Uh, you had to have quote unquote tolerance for frustration, which meant you had to be quiet when you were when you were frustrated. It meant that you had to be willing to lie on a couch and not see the person who you were talking to and and talk and talk and um, and accept the value of the interpretations that you were given. I mean, not, not, to, not to denigrate that method, because I think a lot of people did benefit from that method, but it's Eurocentric. It's, it's, it's the embodiment of Northern European values, of tolerance for frustration, of, of abstinence. There's nothing wrong with that if we acknowledge that it's got a particular cultural location and it doesn't work for everybody. So... So that's one of the, the ways in which a lot of things dovetailed when psychoanalysis came to North America. Staying in the office, expecting people to, to talk to somebody who doesn't talk back to them, um, regarding that as a, as a, a measure of health, 
and then if if that's what if that's the setup, then we shouldn't be surprised if people who culturally place a value on on warmth and and interaction feel alienated by that technique. So then so then if we're listening to that, we say, okay, how can we take our psychoanalytic values and and find a way to inform the 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 therapeutic work that we're doing with people with with a sensibility that makes sense to the other person's culture. It's it's not that we need to um, twist ourselves as therapists out of shape in order to adapt to somebody else's culture. It's more that it's an interaction of cultures and it's a, it requires mutual understanding. You want this from me, I want this from you. So let's see what we can make of this. I, I don't know if you, if, if I'm addressing your, your question, but uh, am I addressing your question? No. Okay. See, we, 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 as you see black males when they come to treatment, I have nothing in common with you. This is how young black males come to treatment. So when you come with this, this worldview, this worldview doesn't deal with my double consciousness as an African or black man. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to see, I mean, I have a, a method that I use, but I'm trying to understand why do we continue to use this method. I mean, I think the therapist got to be pliant. He's got to be flexible. Because even though you have your culture that you come to treatment with, you have to be able to accommodate. Yeah. You know, it's just like if you go to the doctor. You know, in the African-American community, hypertension is a, a big thing. So the doctor don't, the doctor is pliant. He is flexible. He, he, he uses a treatment modality that's going to work with this particular ethnic group. So I'm saying, it, from a clinical perspective, why the field is not pointing, uh, why it's not flexible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember uh, when I worked in the Bronx, I, uh, when I was working at Bronx Lebanon Hospital, there's a mo several moments that stand out for me. One of them was that a, a patient, a female patient, said to me that she wanted to go, she had a, a physical problem and she said she wanted to go to a Jewish doctor. She was African-American. She said, I want to go to a Jewish doctor. Jewish doctors are better than African-American doctors, she said to me. So I'm sitting there and, um, and I'm secretly pleased being a Jewish doctor myself. <laughs> I was secretly pleased and it was only years later when I thought about that, that she was trying to assess my prejudice And that if I had been, if my consciousness had been raised at that point enough, and if I had enough perspective on my own narcissism, I would have found some way to address that with her. Like, do you think, are you telling me what you think I think? That Jewish doctors are better than African American doctors? You talked to, I, I bring that up because you said double consciousness. And um, so, if you have double consciousness, you know how to play the game according to, you've got, there's two sets of rules out there, at least, and so you know how to play the game according to the, 
to the Euro-American doctor in order to get what you can get out of him. But you've also got another level of consciousness, which I think deserves the word unconscious, that the therapist in that situation psychoanalytically can help you help himself or herself and the other person to recognize by saying, are you saying, telling me what you think I think? Uh, oh, sorry, this man has been trying to talk, but you could be next. Well, actually, I, I, this, we've moved so far from my initial question. But I, I was interested in what you were saying in relation to your point about assumptions, like power is assumed to be certain things. And like, in mental health, um, a healthy person is assumed to be a certain thing. And I was wondering if, like, we, we could talk about that in terms of a Eurocentric idea or a, you know, Anglo-American centric idea of a healthy person versus an Afrocentric idea of a healthy person. Yeah. But, like, how, what would that look like? It's, it's amazing to me the DSM defines health in this incredibly simplistic way. Yeah. Well, it's about function. It's about functionality, yeah. right? It's a one-dimensional. Right. I mean, people have to function. You can't argue with that. But it's so one-dimensional and so culturally specific to the to the um, late capitalist world that we're living in, right. where people are are judged according to how functional they are. Oh, please. It seems that in the long run, what we're talking about is a kind of dialogue. Mm -hmm. How do you convince people? I'm thinking about Trump coming to St. Louis yesterday and immediately goes to St. Charles, which is one of the whitest parts of our, of our community. How do you convince people to dialogue when what they see as the elemental threat is dialogue itself? I mean, it seems when he went to St. Charles, he goes to reinforce, mm -hmm. not to open new avenues of dialogue. I mean, he doesn't go to the bill. He goes to St. I mean, the, 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 he, he, he reinforces his faith. Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't try to convince Trump or any of the people who support him to... I mean, I shouldn't lump together everybody who supports him. There may be people in this room who support him, actually. We need to recognize that, and we not like that. Before I said, how is it that that some of us were so shocked that there were people out there like that? Well, there may be people right here like that too. So we need to ask ourselves, in terms of like uh, dialoguing with them, that first we have to realize that they're there and that they, they have something to say and we have to be willing to hear what they're saying before we can say, you should dialogue. We have to also dialogue. Trump himself, as a person, I wouldn't try to convince him because I don't feel like he cares. His mind is somewhere else. But there, there are people who, who support him because they feel heard by him and they like it that he's so outrageous because they felt the person I'm imagining who supports him has felt invisible and unheard for so long that they love it that somebody is outrageously 
like fearlessly saying exactly what he wants to say and getting away with it. So that's some kind of a dialogue that at least, I mean, between me and that person that I'm, like he he once said something like, uh, I will not not say what I feel. I think he said something like that around the Charlottesville stuff. And as horrified as I was by all of that, I saw something that I recognized in what he said, that he was not going to fail to say what he felt because he was calculating how it would be heard or something like that. And I think that he's found that there's that 35% of people out there who resonate with that, who've felt invisible and silenced for a long time. And there's a lot of other people who feel invisible and silenced for other reasons too. But we, we, I, now have to realize that I've been part of that silencing of people. And what you do next is up for grabs. Not quite that. Other? Yes, sir. Um. I was trained in New York by many of the people yeah. of Europe. Here comes the microphone. And one of the things that we had to do as candidates is take on two analytic cases for no cost. Uh huh. And we treated them from beginning to end for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so that tradition was carried mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that uh, I'd like to say is that slavery was basically an economic issue, that you got good labor and didn't have to pay for it. Mm. And this continues to this day where mm. we're fighting about what the minimum wage should be. Mm. And a lot of the people who work at minimum wages are immigrants, people who have just come to this country, and people of color. So we can't divide the prejudicial mm-hmm. color issue from the economic issue. Mm-hmm. People profit from prejudice. Mm-hmm. And until we deal with that basic fact, mm-hmm. we're not going to get very far. Yeah. Can you take it another step, though? Let's say we do accept that. Then what? What's the? What would be the next step? I'm beyond my area of competence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, in the last couple of years, people have been resistant to the idea that America has not broken its bond to black and brown bodies as an economic tool. Mm -hmm. Um, The phrase that I use is the black body ATM. And it permeates through all of the systems, Mm -hmm. through all of the systems. And unfortunately, uh, what I heard the brother saying, unfortunately, when, when we do this work around race, racism, and racial equity, white people think, we're talking about fixing broken black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. So to Valerie's point, 
I believe that poverty is a plague. I believe that racism is an illness. And I believe that we can heal our community when we come to terms with the reality of what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in St. Louis, we have a serious lack of leadership. Mm -hmm. Amen. And it will not take the time to do the learning. It, it won't invest in obvious opportunities for transformation. And in fact, resist it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think until we get to Valerie's point, until we can embrace what my brothers say, that we'll continue to dysfunction. And um, disease is dis-ease. Mm -hmm. And it's not just black people that are diseased because of the dis-ease. It's all the white people that can't figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I came here today because I understand this to be a primarily white space. Mm -hmm. To understand what are white folks doing about this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because I can't do your work. White people have to do their own work. Right. This is white people work and y'all have to do it. So I came to understand what are white people doing mm -hmm. to fix the white problem. Mm -hmm. Because we have enough work to do in our oppressed, traumatized, militarized, impoverished, <laughs> disenfranchised community. Mm -hmm. I can't do my work and your work. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, you're. I you're... can't. And I'm competent, but I can't do everything. Right. <laughs> well, one, one thing I hear in what you're saying is that, is that medicalizing. Um, the the effects of oppression on people is one way of not dealing with is not dealing with them like there's something wrong with them rather than something more systemic that you're pointing to in terms of a failure of leadership and you said there are obvious opportunities mm -hmm. for fixing things were you can you give an example of that oh absolutely um, she was talking about the for the sake of all report and um, that, team, uh, that team did a beautiful job of outlining what the issues are and providing strategies um, that we can lift up and implement if only leadership would value the need for the investment and call for it, mm -hmm. which they won't. Mm -hmm. The Ferguson Commission, mm -hmm. of which I was a member, spent a year all over the country People are taking our work and trying to fix issues. And here in St. Louis, there are very few people that have read the document, that have embraced the document, that have tried to understand what we're saying. Mm -hmm. The path is clear. Mm -hmm. The work has been provided. And that's why, so that's why I mean, like here in St. Louis, obvious opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because people have spent years De developing a base of understanding, it's research-based, right? The thinking came from all over the world, hoping that St. Louis might provide an, an, an environment, an opportunity to get some traction, right, as a model. And we're, we're failing to do that yeah. in, many, in many ways. It's, it's a bit disappointing. I, I'm not hopeless, but we've got two tools here. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you how, you're, how it is that you're not hopeless, and maybe we'll get back to that, but another question is, 
Do, do you feel like that failure to implement obvious uh, helpful things reflects what this gentleman said, which is that there's an economic investment in keeping things the way they are? Yeah. Is that, does that make sense to you? Yeah. And I, I think it is, I think it is, it is the um, economic opportunity, but I also think there's a fear. Um, I okay. believe, you know, I, I believe that there are two things. There is love and fear. Okay. And I think that people fear things they don't understand. Uh -huh. And that fear immobilizes them. I see. Okay. And, and so, yeah. so they can't, you know, they can't engage with yeah. the learning. Right. Or embrace an opportunity that's something Right. So, okay, so now you're bringing in a psychological piece. You're saying if there's fear that keeps people in the, with the tried and true destructive things that they're used to, then that fear could be addressed mm -hmm. psychologically. Yes. If, the, if, the, if there were leadership in doing that, right? There would have to be leadership that, uh, that says something like... Um, um, I recognize your fear. You were brought up a certain way. We're asking you to do things differently. Um, but, but something like we'll show you the way, or something like that. Something that made that would make people feel protected and taken care of while they while they explored something unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And that um, so. Um, the question of like having a white identity um, is it serves a function for people of feeling like Baldwin pointed out a feeling that they have some immunity to a kind of suffering that they're taught exists only for black people so you're going to ask them now to uh, explore the possibility that we're all alike. That they are indeed suffering. That, that they, they are, are indeed suffering in ways suffering. that they don't want to know about. In, they, in ways that they won't recognize. Yeah, yeah, that they don't want to recognize, right. right. I mean, and and it's, it's apparent, right? Yeah. It's apparent in the divorce rates. It's apparent yeah. that we're twins. In the opioid crisis, in the, yeah. In the addiction. Yeah. In, in obesity and all the signs that people are suffering across racial categories. Yes, absolutely. So, right, some kind of, some kind of leadership, some kind of psychological leadership that way. Okay, now I see why you're not feeling hopeless. Because you can, you can see what, what could happen if there was the right kind of leadership. If there were the right kind of leadership. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, if, and if people understood more broadly... Yeah. That there is a solution that is inclusive of everyone, yeah, um, and that it will help you as well. Right? Yeah. it's not about fixing broken, yeah. black, right. brown people. Right, right. right. See, right. yeah, Baldwin told white people that, and he said that he did that out of love. He tried. He tried. Right, and his work survives. What's that? I do the work that I do now. Yeah. Yeah, and that is real love that you're that you're you're seeing the price that people pay for their destructiveness toward you, 
that you are caring about the price that they're paying for their grasping onto power, political and economic power, the way they do. So, um, yeah. When you, there we go, okay. So, so I think there's something, and this may be unconscious, subconscious, that makes you feel like you need to, to be a better person. And in order to be better, you have to be better than something. Than someone else, and it, right. And that turns into better than someone else. Yeah. And then culturally, you wanna do better, and so, you have to instill in people this desire to do better. And what's the opposite of better? Well, the opposite economically of better is poor. And so you almost end up inadvertently evilizing a group of people because you don't want to be poor. You don't want to be not better than somebody. And, mm -hmm. I, and I especially see it you know, in, in a, a, a lower white social economic class, because like, who are you better than? Well, you've got to be better than somebody. Mm -hmm. And I just see it, I see it from a social, so psychoanalytic perspective of, you know, would there be some way to kind of heal people so that they didn't feel like their worth was dependent on somebody else being less worthy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's from a white perspective. And yeah. I, that's something that, that I struggle with, that I see around me, and that I, I, I don't, I, I feel we can villainize people to avoid situations as examples, and it creates even a greater divisiveness than people realize. That's all it changes that. Well, again, I think we, we can, um, have that there's a, a, a preparatory work, I don't think this is working, there's a, a preparatory work that um, has to do with recognizing that all of us are prone to that. Like, I don't want to deny that I look for people to feel better than. I think you have to accept that, that it's a, it's a, it's a widely shared thing that we all have, so that then when you address it, you're not talking down to people who, who are, who are, um, who are, it, it doesn't become moralizing then. It well, becomes, look, this. You're, you're part of the issue. You're we're part, of, yeah. You know, you can't tell people they need to fix themselves and here are the tools and you'll do better if you yeah. do this. Yeah. And then not address the part. It has to be a joint effort. Yeah. There's a book called um, um, The Road to Whatever, uh, written by a sociologist, Elliot Curry. And his book is about how, how is it, he, he, he wrote this book probably 15 years ago, how is it that so many adolescents in the United States um, feel about their lives like whatever, like they don't really care about anything? And, and his answer to that question is that there's such an emphasis about being at the top of the heap that if you're not at the very top, then you think you're a failure. 
and you succumb to whatever. So that's an, an aspect of that disease, that so many people are running so fast to get to the very top of whatever they're trying to do at great cost to themselves, to their health and their families and all that. Okay, we, so we're going to have to wind down in 10 or 15 minutes. We're going to have to wind down within the next 10 or 15 minutes. Um, well, um, okay, let's, let's think what to do. I know pe there are people who want to say things who haven't spoken yet. Should we just uh, go with the, with the things people want to say? That seems like the best thing to do. I think we need to spend a little time also thinking about what are we going to do when we leave here tonight. Like this can be one of those moments that are that are um, inspiring, and then you go back to business as usual. I don't know if we can avoid that or not, but all right, please. So I just wanted to get back to the question of, or get back onto the point of um, what's psychological in this problem, especially the malady of white privilege and be really concrete about the fact that our leadership is white. And to add to the issue of fear, I think we really have to think about shame. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the ways in which maybe I don't specifically benefit financially from racism, um, not, not specifically, not directly, but I absolutely benefit from racism. And when we have an entire leadership of people who benefit either financially, psychologically, through power and authority from racism. The desire for that to change requires really confronting our shame around the fact that we have been for millennia. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> um, white, white guilt is, is, is one of those locutions that I think needs to be qualified. White privilege, I'm sorry. White privilege is one of those times when we need to specify what kind of privilege we're talking about because there are ways in which being white is not a privilege in the ways that you're talking about. The, the sicknesses that we see in the world around us as a result of people running after that, that kind of privilege. So white, but it's a real privilege. It's economic and political, and those are crucial. So we do need to recognize those, but we also need to recognize the price that people pay for being that oriented to money and power. So, uh, so there's that. Then there's shame and there's guilt. So um, guilt, that's one of the things that keeps, that people are afraid of actually, is, um, is um, is feeling guilty. So guilt, white guilt, that's one of the things that keeps things in place is the wish to avoid guilt. But a lot of what's called guilt is actually the avoidance of guilt. Like people who do things lip service, like that's the sickness of liberalism. Like liberalism is lip service while, like, what do we feel guilty? What do I feel guilty about? I don't feel guilty because I have money. I feel guilty because I won't give it up. I will not give it up. That's the truth. Maybe someday I will, but right now I am attached to my money, and that's what I feel guilty about. Now, why do I feel guilty about that? Because I'm aware 
that I'm insensitive to other people's suffering and those people are human beings like me and that I have to, I have to break the bonds, the psychic bonds with other people in order to hold on as tightly as I do to my economic privilege. So real guilt is not so easy that you can write a check to a charity or something like that. Real guilt comes, is coming to terms with the fact that you are exploiting people that you also, at some level, might care about. Um, I just want to go for people who haven't spoken. I just want to make sure there wasn't anything else I wanted to say about that. Um, why should you have to give your money up? It's yours. You made it. Why should you have to? Why? Why? You, you, That's a good question, too. You made it. You made it because you educated yourself. What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, we could go into all the... All the um, yes, I agree with you. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to give it up. The, the, the system should change in a way that it's not so unequal and, and so on. But... Um, then I also have to realize the backs of who whose backs did I did I attain that on? You don't like that. You went to school. You went to you drove them wherever you were living. You got your education. You did it on your own. My parents paid my tuition. Okay, that's fine. What? Well, I'll just tell you about myself. My parents paid my tuition. My father was an attorney. Okay. His father was a fire adjuster. A fire adjuster is a person. It's a, a person who um, quotes the de- who makes an estimate of the damage for the person who suffered the loss. My father said to me, you, "My father, my grandfather, was such a good fire adjuster that the fire department called the the dispatcher called him before the fire station. He was proud of that." And I had to be 40 years old before I realized he was talking about corruption. My grandfather paid off the dispatcher to call him so he would be the first fire adjuster on the scene. And that was part of the privilege in that family. Now, that's just one story. And you can say, well, there are plenty of other stories where the money that my father used to pay for my education was... was was um, made on the suffering of people who, some of whom probably died in fires because of the delay. I don't. I don't want to make you silent, though. So go ahead. You went to school. Sure. And I benefited from that. Aside from the. It was good for me, okay, yeah. So, so why do you feel bad about that? Oh, I don't feel bad about that. I feel, I feel great about having studied and having okay. learned things and having and been inspired by my... You, right, you yeah, right. But my fees right now are pretty high, and I feel... You deserve it. Deserve it? Well... You earned it. Yeah, okay. I wish we could, maybe we will later have a whole other. There's somebody, yeah, you haven't spoken yet. By the way, I didn't hear the corruption in that for years and years and years. That's part of what was socialized into me. 
that my grandfather was an honorable person. And it took me a long time to be able to bear that knowledge. Go ahead. Well, I, wanted, I was curious um, if we could talk about leadership and the ways that this institute and all the people here can come together for in changing the leadership and how individuals in people's own practices can work to bring people together uh -huh. to attempt to change leadership and change people's minds about who we should put into leadership and the ways that this institute and all the people who are here who care about this mm -hmm. could potentially come together. You're thinking in their practices or? I'm thinking collectively, uh, uh, people who obviously all care about what is going on and what what we're talking about, mm -hmm. injustice. How can we put that caring into practice? Into practice. As a psychoanalytic institute. Yes, as, as an institute and as people who know of the institute and can support the institute mm -hmm. or, or create their own entity. That is a model for a different way of being with each other? That is, that is a model for people who care about these issues mm -hmm. um, coming together to create something that's larger than themselves to try to change leadership, essentially. Yeah. If, if that is what would one be... of the barriers to um, yeah. in actually enacting the plans that people have already laid out. So what would be a first step in that direction, do you think? Well, I, I think that people, all the people here um, seem to care about what's going on, so bringing these people together in, in a unified way that isn't just people come to this and then leave and go back to right. their daily lives. I know, I see the need that you're putting your finger on, but what, be a leader now yourself, and so like, well, how would you begin to organize people, or what would you, what would uh, you do? Um, I think, I mean, like, a, I know that the Institute already has people's emails, like, we need that, uh -huh. and, um, I'm, no, I'm not entirely sure, but I think, yeah. I, I guess I was just, thinking about, there's a lot of potential right yeah. here, and yeah, all yeah. these people who come together. Right, right. And so we should not let that just fall away when, right, we, when right. this is over. Well, sometimes, sometimes you have to step up yourself and say, I wish the leadership would find a way to, to use the potential that's in this group. But, but then somebody has to step forward and be the leader. Like, um, I, one of the things about the 60s uh, was that the night that they arrested 800 students outside the administration building in Berkeley for demanding the right to speak at, at that place, there was a guy named Mario Savio who got up on top of the police car he was a, I think he was a freshman or a sophomore or something. He got up there and he got carried away with, he said, there comes a time when the, when the workings of the machine become intolerable and you have to throw your body on the gears and make it stop. And he got hundreds of people like cheering him as he said that. So something possessed him at that moment and he wasn't going to wait for somebody else to, to take the leadership. He was going to say, come on, people, let's, first of all, don't be intimidated by the police. Hold on to what brought you here in the first place. Anyway, something like that. Uh, yes? Um, actually, I, I'd like to comment on what the young man just said. Yeah. Um, I'm Phoebe Serio. I'm the chair of community education at the Institute. 
and it's our committee that has sponsored this lecture. And I think this is fabulous and something that is a wonderful opportunity for us at the Institute to figure out something to do, which I don't know what that is that we should do. But I hope none of you leave today without signing my notebook <coughs> if you want to be contacted. Those of you who aren't already, you know, like at the Institute, so we have your name and your email and your phone number because I think we can do something from this point forward in terms of at least enhancing uh, dialogue and education. I think it would be, I think this provides us a wonderful springboard uh, to move forward. Can I say something? Yes. And you know, with all the distress of living in this cauldron of racial tension the last few years, I've probably been to about six or eight discussions like this or movie groups about things, you know, uh, but it's always the people attending are the people who are yeah. seem to be already converted, people that are concerned about the issue and want to know more. So I think, um, I guess the quote was, uh, you, you need to get out there to the ones who, who are already happy where they are in their own little groups and, you know, whatever. So there needs to be a way to break the barriers and then, you know, be recommending required lectures. Not lectures. <laughs> <laughs> required programs. Okay. Applying. Sometimes it, you, you have to take political action, um, smart political action that can be informed psychologically. Like I, uh, one of the things that Gandhi did that I think is one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard about is that the British um, taxed salt in India. That's one of the oppressive things that they did. So Gandhi said, I'm going to walk to the ocean and collect salt which was a uh, crime because he wasn't paying tax on it. And so he walked to the sea, to the Arabian Sea, and on, the, on his route, 10,000 people eventually were following him, and they all collected salt. So he put the British in the situation of either arresting 10,000 people for collecting salt or else standing helplessly by while people broke the law. And that was the, that was the beginning of the freedom movement in India. So that, that is smart and strategic. So you have to think outside the box. Anybody else who hasn't spoken? But go ahead. Or to want to kill other people because of what they have, also. Like envy, Melanie Klein's idea of envy was that it was the purest form of the death instinct. 
because it's the most it's the embodiment of evil because it aims to to destroy the one that has what you need so that's what um that's what melanie klein came away from world war 1 with but it um because melanie klein wanted to preserve love above all else the defense that she identified splitting was a way of trying to protect love by splitting off hate and destructiveness but the fly in the ointment is is envy because envy keeps destroying and destroying and destroying and destroying so that was where she placed her hopelessness So I don't know. We have to stop now. And um, yeah, what's that? We got an extension. Okay, go ahead. Saturday morning from 9 to 11, we will have uh, a dialogue between Dr. Altman and Melita Newberg uh, in order to answer questions of how do we take our concepts into outside of the office and into the community. And for instance, one of the questions that I would have about what stops us from really taking positions of leadership, what are the psychological impediments, Maybe defenses, maybe envy, maybe any of those things. But we need more discussion in order to start to continue moving. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I need to take you to dinner, so let him go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for coming. It was inspiring. I just want to thank Dr. Altman, and I really want to thank this group of people you facilitated I think everybody having a chance to speak their voice and be heard and I hope there are a lot of us that are listening thank you very much